So, uh, so this is it. We, we've survived the series. If you're still with us here in the room, I'm, I'm really proud of you. I, I don't think, we lost way less people than I thought we would. Uh, I do think we ended up losing just a few folks, but they were all really respectful and the emails that came in were, were actually fairly kind. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm good with that. And if you're confused, we're in a series right now called Where the Girls Are. And we're talking about all the myths and misconceptions around how the Bible, uh, how we believe the Bible speaks about women. And uh, as we started kind of clarifying some of these myths, naturally what happens in a church this size is a few people are like, wait, wait, that's not a myth. And I'm like, wait, wait, what if it is? And then they're like, wait, wait, now we have tension. I can't be in community here. And I'm like, why not? I'm in tension with people within my own family all the time. Like, that's what we're supposed to be as a family. And they're like, no, 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 I need to be in a church where I agree with everything the pastor thinks. And I'm like, bro, you need to leave now because (laughs) that's a pressure I just can't handle. And as you all know, I don't have enough parking spots as it is. And so I... I want to save those for people that are willing to put in the time to argue. So uh, for those of you who are in the room and you are, you're, you're willing to sit in the tension, I'm not asking you to believe everything. I'm not asking you to agree with everything. I'm just asking you to be willing to be in a community full of people with different worldviews, different perspectives, and a willingness to sit in some of that tension because that is what makes family. And every time we invite more and more people from the neighborhood or from downtown or from the rural places or, or wherever they come from, they bring new opinions. How in the world are we supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus if we gotta be like the same exact way in every single situation? We need to be willing to sit in some of that tension. And so as the current pastor of the church, for as long as the Lord allows, I just want you to know it's never going away, ever. We're never gonna be in a place where we're like, Ah, finally, we have exactly the 2,000 people that should be here that all agree with exactly everything that we all think. Now we can go accomplish the things of Christ. That's not going to happen. We're always going to feel some of this. So if this is uncomfortable for you, then uh, again, sorry. But I'm proud of you for staying in it and being a part of it. All that said, I'm going to bring a whole bunch more attention today as I close the series with even more misty talk. The question that has to be answered today in order to do this series, it's genuine respect is this. How does everything that we've learned about these myths and misconceptions about women, how does this apply to our church and us as individuals? How do, now, what does that mean for Kesson? What does that mean for you sitting in the chairs or you watching at home? To answer this, we have to do the thing, same thing we've been talking about needing to do in every series for the last two years. We have to stop for just a second and pause. Stop traveling down your own well-worn mental path that you've been taught is correct, your worldview that is how things are, and just look around for a second. Just ponder just for a second to make sure all the things that, that, that really are built into how you see and operate within the world, make sure those things are what you think they are. This is an important part of being a Christian because I'm here to tell you right now, this age and how I approach scripture versus 10 years ago versus 10 years before that are radically different. So why in the world would I not approach scripture today with a little more open-handedness knowing that in 10 years, that version of Danny is gonna be so much more well-refined and clever than this version of Danny, which is hard to imagine, I know. Can you, can you even fathom it? I can't, I'm so excited to meet him. So excited to meet him. But it goes for all of you in the room as well. Like, 
how you see life right now is so different than how you saw life 10 years ago. So why do you talk about life as if you figured it out, knowing that the version of you 10 years from now is going to be that much more clever and refined? Why not just be a little more question marky? That's a deep theological term. You can write that down. If you want question marky, it's Greek. That's very powerful. Why not be a little bit more curious? Why not create a little more space for you to go, ah, you know, I'm pretty firm on this, I think. I'm sure I am. And then be sort of firm on it. Now, it doesn't mean you don't grab hold of the close-handed things and hold firm to those, but there's probably not more than 10 or 12. All the rest of this is stuff that is meant to develop us and draw us deeper into community and intimacy with one another. But you are halted, and I'll even go as far to say you are spiritually stunted if you get to the end of your spiritual sentence, put a giant period and go, well, that wraps up Danny's development. (laughs) Can you believe I figured it out so young? That's a hard person to be in community with. And it's a really, really hard uh, It's a hard approach to building a church community. And I think there's a lot of churches around that did that 15 or 20 years ago. And now everybody who agreed with them is getting older. The young families aren't coming to be apart because there's no space, because there's a period instead of a comma. There's no more room to write the sentence of that church's existence. And that's what we're trying to refuse to do here. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, so we're gonna dive into this. Let me start off with this picture. I want us to imagine if we all have this level of mist around the myths in our mind. We all have this kind of forest that we're traveling through to discover uh, the new things of God. The Bible teaches us that our desire to get through that kind of mental development is to search for light. 1 John 1, 5 through 7 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Listen to verse 7 really carefully. This is great prefacing for what we want to talk about today. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, Not only do we get the benefits of relationship with Jesus, but the first thing we get a benefit of is actually being in community and fellowship with one another. That's a really important part of church life is that we are focused on the light. Therefore, we are all living, traveling towards this light and we are connected with one another. Now, it doesn't mean there's not mist and myth and all kinds of things that cloud the way, but if we are focused on the light, and not on defining my own worldview or my own vision of how things are or this is how the world should be and I'm gonna make it so, then that's why so many people have such lonely existence. That's why so many people get stunted by a mission they feel that God has given them or, or, a, or a way in which God has called them to live and they are so out on their own, they're not even focused on the light anymore, they're focused on the mission. When Jesus is the mission, by the way, there is, this is total side note, only for this sermon, so I don't know who messed up the room today, but if you have a mission bigger than the light of Jesus, it's not from Jesus. Jesus is the only and forever mission. Now, there'll be, there'll be uh, campaigns, right? There'll be seasons where you're gonna be a church planner or you're gonna be an overcomer or you're gonna be a protector or you're, whatever it is. I don't know what God's doing in your life. But the great war 
that we're about is the spiritual warfare of connecting people to Jesus. He is the light. And therefore, when we are following him, then you can go anywhere you need to in the mist, anywhere you need to, even in the myth. You can be curious about the most absurd things. You know how often I have to be curious about crazy stuff? People come and sit with me and they're like, I just want to talk to you about something. I have never told anybody this. And then they share something that's really important to them. And it's absurd. And I'm like, you know what? Let's be curious about that. Maybe that could be true. And they're like, really? And I'm like, I don't know. And then we, we parse it out. We unpack it. We walk it out. And eventually, most of the time, they come to a place and they're like, you know, Danny, thanks for doing this with me, but I don't, I don't think this is true. And I'm like, what? And they're like, no, no, no. This can't be true because this doesn't tie to this and this. And I'm like, oh, profound. And they're like, yeah, glad we could have this talk. And then they look at me like, you should have known this. You're the pastor of the church. And they, they get up and leave. It happens all the time. And I'm like, hmm. Like it's, it's frustrating, but it's part of the job. You got to be curious about this stuff. Some of you in the room, you're like, I did that to him. I did. I know three or four of you. You're like, he really did know the whole time. Maybe, maybe not. You'll never know. Here's what we do know. We know this about light, that light brings clarity, that clarity is important even when it's painful. Today, I'm hoping to bring some very painful clarity to our church. And I am, I'm not hoping it's going to be painful. I'm hoping it's going to be so clear that it, that it ends up hurting just a little bit. Let me give you an example. Here's an example of an opening statement that we'll bounce from. The church often teaches us how to pretend instead of imagine. The church has a really hard time imagining. So what the church does is it takes what's said and it freezes it in time and then it pretends that it knows how to use that particular scripture or passage or dogma in a way that applies in every single situation. And then when you can't figure it out, the church says something like, just trust me, I'm in charge. Instead of imagining, which I think scripture much more proves all that time in Jesus in the New Testament, he reaches back into the old and he pulls this, the, all these things forward that, they, that the prophets were imagining would one day happen. He's pulling these things forward. And then we imagine that everything just stopped with Jesus, that nothing he was doing in the New Testament was also teaching us to pull things forward. We gave an example a few weeks back. We saw some of this when we talked about the goodness of God's original creation versus the curse and consequences that followed, we struggled to imagine a way that that could possibly be of a beautiful context because it's a really difficult verse. In Genesis 3.16, this is the verse. It's God talking to Eve after she gives Adam the apple and they both sin. It says, he says, I will make your pain and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And we see that verse and we see that consequence. And then we say, boom, frozen in time. That's how you build good marriages. You build good marriages. I'll do the ruling and you just do the longing. Okay, so I'll be in charge and you just desire for me not to be in charge is how I read the passage basically, right? Or you desire something that you're never gonna get from me. Either way, the Bible's really clear here that due to sin, I'm in charge and you're not, so you should just shut up and take your place. And that's not at all what the verse is saying. But it takes a really powerful man, right, to understand this verse has nothing to do with your power. And it takes a really powerful woman to understand this verse has nothing to do with your weakness. That this verse is much more consequences of then that are existing in that place that then have to be pulled forward into the arc of later scripture. The myth here would be this. 
that we should build our homes, marriages, and relationships upon the curse and its consequences, pretending this is the best God had in mind. This is it. This is how everybody should operate. The truth here would be that God is restoring us back into what he intended, imagining our lives filled with mutually life-giving relationships and fellowship. That what God was doing in the New Testament is the same thing he was working through in the Old Testament, which was restoring us to that ideal of mutual companionship, of mutual uh, beneficialness, of mutual connectedness. But it takes imagining to do that. Imagination happens when we see our lives through the lens of what could and can be. And we don't do that in scripture enough. We don't sit there and see the ark and the way that it's pulled forward. And yet it's these kinds of clarifying insights that give us the freedom to no longer travel blindly in the mist while listening to the myths. And yet it's these kinds of clarifying insights that we do very rarely. And so instead we hand people tradition And we say, just do it like we did it before. It'll work for you like it worked for us. The problem is the divorce rate is no better for Christians than it is for non-Christians. So why in the world would I want to do it like you do it? Why in the world? You don't have better relationships than anybody else. Your churches aren't more inviting than any churches before you. You haven't unlocked any kind of secret. As a matter of fact, there's all kind of dysfunction I'm still undoing in my mind based on the church that I grew up in. Why would I then want to bring that dysfunction into this church so that we can continue to push the rhetoric? Well, you can't sit there and undo all those things. There were beautiful things. There were beautiful things. There were good things. There were good things. But there were also all kinds of uneasy conversations that should have been had. There were all kinds of dysfunction that were hidden in the name of protecting the Lord and his reputation. God doesn't need my protection. He doesn't care about that. We should write that down. That could be one of the topics. Jesus don't care about that about us protecting his, res- his reputation. He doesn't care about that at all. I'll prove it. Those of you who disagree, write it down. I'll meet you on stage. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. We're going to practice some of this pausing and evaluating. We're going to look around and evaluate. I'm going to start with the women. And uh, for every service, this has hit the room just a little bit different. So uh, I just want to preface by none of this is personal. Uh, it's just biblical. And so you're going to have to kind of filter this how you want. But I'm going to start with a really common myth. That way I can kind of give you this idea around how and why you should practice this turning around and rethinking your worldview and what's misty and what's mythy in your mind and really instead basing it on the Bible. Here's a powerful myth for women. The Proverbs 31 woman is the ideal example of a righteous woman. Woo! Now, for those of you who grew up in church, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For those of you who haven't, if you were in a more traditional church, eventually you would get into a small group of some sort or hear a sermon, usually from a guy, who would tell you this is the ideal example based on scripture of how a woman should be and behave. So I'm gonna read this passage over you with uh, that in mind. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you just let it really soak in. I know my wife has both times that I've read it. Aaron, third time, I'm hoping some of this sticks this time. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. My wife's back in this corner. So I'll read this right to her. (laughs) Starts off with this question. It's a hard question. An excellent wife. An excellent wife. Who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And he will have no lack of gain. Honey, listen. She does him good and not harm 
all the days of her life. That means every day, folks. No harm, only good. <laughs> My wife definitely doesn't do this next one. She seeks wool and flax. I don't see no wool and flax in my house, babe. And she works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. This one disqualifies my wife right away. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. First off, my wife has no maidens. So that's not cool because I bet they could get a lot of stuff done. Second, why isn't she cooking stuff at night? I want to wake up to warm muffins in the morning. That's what this verse says should happen. She considers a field and buys it. She's in real estate. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She's a winemaker. My wife's pretty close on that one. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She's into yoga. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She's a seamstress. This is crazy. Like what? She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household. So she drives in the winter. For all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, he says, but you, my dear, surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Now, this passage is eloquent and beautiful, and there are so many good and wonderful things within it. But I want you to know that most of the time I have, uh, I have been either asked to teach this passage or I have sat in a room with a husband and wife specifically where this passage was brought up. It was brought up to damage a woman or to, to uh, control or manipulate her into being something she wasn't sat with one husband one time and he didn't feel like his wife did enough and he actually brought up the passage that says in verse 27 he said she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness and then he looked at his wife and she and he said her hands are idle all the time and how do you as a woman defeat that passage your husband's using scripture there's entire bible studies on what it means to be a proverbs 31 woman and yet I actually think that entire thing is one big myth. To understand Proverbs 31, the last chapter in the book, you have to first go in context to look at the first chapter in the book. The whole book begins with a young man. It says that the world is set before him. And the father is in the book talking to this young man. And he desperately wants good things for his son. And so he shares with his son that there are two paths in life that you can choose as you build a life. A path of wisdom 
and a path of folly. And in the book, wisdom and folly are each represented by a woman. Throughout the book, each of these, these, these people in the book, these representations of wisdom and folly, try and pull the young man in their direction. The father, in the midst of all these different pullings, is encouraging the young man to choose wisdom over and over. Proverbs chapter 2 says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The father continues to battle against the words of wisdom and folly as they battle for the attention of the young man until in the end, in the big climax, the young man chooses wisdom. He chooses wisely. And then we have the Proverbs 31 woman. That's how the book closes. Here's a powerful truth for women. The Proverbs 31 woman isn't a woman at all. She is wisdom symbolized for all humanity, men and women. She is God. And so what this passage has been proclaiming is who God is. That God provides for his family. That God shows up. That God is involved. That God is around. It shows how wisdom, in a sense, is working its way out into our everyday lives. And yet what we've done is we've taken the little title put there by men the Proverbs 31 woman. And then we've said, that's how you're supposed to behave. And if you don't behave this way, then you exist in a less than state. Here's some painful clarity for you women in the room. None of you are Proverbs 31 women. Not one. Now, if you've felt like you've achieved this goal, that you are accomplishing the things of God, I just have to be honest, you're definitely living with a little bit of self-righteous piety. And you're definitely walking around looking at other women being like, hmm, apparently you're not Proverbs 31 material. What happens more often is that you think you are supposed to achieve this, but have always known deep down that you'll continually fall short. Eventually, you'll definitely live with a constant sense of shame around your failings because of this. And yet, if you wanted to push back even a little bit further, the question I would have is, where is the Proverbs 32 man chapter? Like, like, pretty sure somebody just spit water over here and just like, oh. Yeah, we don't ever ask those questions, right? We never are like, oh, you got to be a Proverbs 31 woman. Awesome. Where's the passage on men? There's not because there's not. That's not how it's supposed to be used. Now, there's all kinds of stuff around men and myths that, that, that are poured into our lives. And so I want to talk about those. So let's take a minute with men and look around the midst of our myths. Let's look around the, the midst of our myths and evaluate. Here's a powerful myth for men. That if you notice a woman's appearance, you are left defenseless to lust. Church has taught this many, many times. If you see a woman and you're like, oh, she's beautiful. Boom. Sin in your life. Shame in your heart. And now you've got to figure out what to do with that. This is not true. A powerful truth for men that I want to give you instead. There's a difference, according to the Bible, between lust or coveting, two very close but different things, and appreciation. There's a difference. And I want to break those down for you. 
Let's talk about coveting first. Exodus 20, 17 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. That's because coveting is all about property. It's about wanting what someone else has. It's about wanting what they, what they, what they own. And in this culture at this time, all those things listed were things that men owned. And so coveting got tied to those things. And those are very cultural things for now. We don't own our wives or we're not supposed to, hence the series. We don't own people anymore as well. This is, again, why passages in the Bible need to be parsed out and unpacked. We just read the coveting verse, but don't actually tie it to all the things that are inappropriate to actually own in the first place. Let me put up a picture. This is a 1962 Ferrari GTO 250. That's all coveting. Sin, sin, sin that you just... <laughs> so broken. I'm going to have a quick altar call down here for all the, all the folks in the room. Uh, I am a car guy, and I've often been asked, hey, Danny, what's your favorite car? This is it. This is my favorite car. There were only 39 of these ever made. I think there's only 36 currently in existence, and they are incredibly expensive. I've never even seen one in real life. I will admit, though, I am fairly convinced that this is the car Jesus is going to drive when he picks me up out in front of the gates of heaven and then takes me on a cruise of uh, what's going on that night in town. Just him and me, his hair blown in the wind. <laughs> it's just, just Jesus and me driving in my Ferrari that he's going to get me at the end. If I saw this car in town, if I saw this car in a showroom, if I saw this car at a car show, I would notice this car right away. There would be no way that I couldn't notice this car. This is a normal response. Now, if I saw this car on the street and it was going right and I was going left and the car took a right and I decided to change my plans for the day and go right and then follow the driver of the car home and find out where the car lived and then spend the next two weeks making a plan on how I was gonna get the car, how I was going to own the car, that would be coveting. It isn't the same thing as appreciating or noticing. You can appreciate a beautiful car without feeling like you aren't complete until you own it. Now, lust is similar, but just a little different because lust isn't about property, it's about possession. It's about wanting who someone else is to fill all of the missing voids inside who you think you aren't. Matthew 5 says, this is a very commonly used verse, especially poured over men, especially used to invoke tons and tons of shame. It says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This passage is not referring to noticing someone. This passage is not referring to noticing anything or even appreciating the beauty of something. This passage is referring to scheming and planning with the goal of consuming another person, whether in fantasy or in real life, especially to mediate the need you have in you that you don't want to deal with and so that you decide to medicate with the mental owning or even physically owning of another person. This is an incredibly 
powerful passage. Because you know what? I've seen a lot of people blow their families to pieces, blow their lives to pieces because of lust. And often you might think, boy, it sure would have been better for you just to lose an eye than to do all this. And yet, especially when it comes to all the Bible literalists in the room, people who are like, listen, every word was written for every situation at every time. None of it is, none of it is allegory. None of it is situational or even cultural. This stuff exists just as it is. And yet even meeting with those Bible literalists, and I've met with many, especially men, I'm always confused why none of them aren't missing at least a right eye or a right hand. Because if you're gonna read the text, bro, read the text. Now, either you never struggle or you've just decided to set that verse down and you've chosen battles that aren't nearly as big or heavy for you. This is my friend, Kate Beckinsale. I don't actually know Kate at all. But about 10 years ago, my wife noticed that I was noticing Kate. That I would be like, oh, this is a movie with Kate Beckinsale. We'd watch it, and then a month later, I'd, I'd, she'd come on for a small scene. and be like, oh, there's Kate Beckinsale again. And then, like, two months later, all of a sudden, I was like, oh, another movie with Kate Beckinsale. And she's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a lot of Kate in our life right now, Danny. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And she goes, do you, uh, do you find Kate attractive? And I was like, well, are you kidding me? <laughs> Reached down, put on my church goggles. I have only seen two beautiful women in my life. You and my mother, that's it. I don't even see other women. <laughs> I took off my church goggles and I was honest with my wife and I confessed, yes, I do appreciate this particular woman's beauty. If I was at a stoplight <laughs> and I saw her, I would notice. I wouldn't follow her home. <laughs> I would take a right if she took a left. But I would notice. It was kind of a thing in our marriage, kind of fun. We joked about it a lot. And then about two years ago, my wife never watches TV with me. Little side note, she always games or she's always on her computer. But I started to notice that when certain ads came on or certain commercials, that, that my wife would stop her video gaming and look up. And they were always when this gentleman was on the screen. <laughs> this is my wife's good friend, David Beckham. <laughs> and so I asked her one day, I'm like, Erin, I noticed you always pause your gaming when old David Beckham comes on the screen. She's like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. Only two handsome men in my life, you and my father. And we joked about it. And to this day, this is uh, somebody that I think my wife, if she was at a stoplight, <laughs> she, would, she, would notice, she would notice David. I'll be honest. I would also notice David. I'm just going to be honest. I'll be like, I, I, I got to admit, my wife, I'm like, ah, David, that's a pretty handsome guy. That's, that's a well-made man right there. That's what, that's what that is. If you can't live in reality, then you are always going to struggle with pretending. You're going to struggle with pretending, but instead you have to realize that we are created how we're created for a reason, and we are called to live in this community together. You can appreciate the beauty or talent in another person without fantasizing about possessing or consuming them without lusting. But we haven't told our boys that. We haven't told our girls that. We haven't really even told ourselves that. And so instead we live in this constant state of shame for operating how we're built to operate or for acting out in secret and not knowing how to get help. Now, 
With all this in mind, I'd like us now to look around with painful clarity and evaluate together something that involves both men and women. The gospel teaches that we are to be brothers and sisters, close, connected, and communal that we are to be in community together. I told you earlier, the church likes to pretend because it can't imagine well. This verse is supposed to drive you towards imagination. Genesis 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Sorry, Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. It's a profound statement of what can happen in freedom, but what doesn't have to happen in freedom. We are told to be brother and sister-like. That means to be intimate and connected and known. But of course, within that freedom, bad things can happen. The problem is the church says bad things only can happen. And so we have policies, like a church that I was associated with, or not associated with, but I went to a few conferences around where the pastor openly proclaimed that on their staff, the men in their church don't even ride in elevators alone with women because they never want to give off anything that could happen. And then it came out a few years later, that guy had an affair. He never did ride in an elevator alone with a woman though. He just found a different way. We have to sit in reality that we are supposed to be freely connected to one another in a beneficial community that comes out of freedom. Freedom to have our voices heard, freedom to be equally considered, freedom to bring our whole selves to the community. But again, the church has a hard time imagining this. Because the church proclaims through pretending that when men and women are close together, bad things happen. And so more myths are created. A powerful church myth, for example, is this one. Intimacy leads to sex. If you are love, if you are caring, if you are kind, then naturally that's going to progress to sex. And this is not always true. This is not even psychologically true. The truth is that sex is one compartmental part of intimacy but it's only one possible expression. Intimacy in and of itself is much, much larger and encompasses much, much more. There's also a powerful worldly myth that spins this on its head and says that sex leads to intimacy. If you want to really know someone, you got to sleep with them. This is also not true. The truth is that for many, flesh is much easier to share than feelings. Both myths are proclaiming that we cannot separate intimacy from sexuality, and so therefore we cannot be in community together, and it's just not true. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, and let us consider, look at the phrase, how to stir up one another to love and good works. That is an intimate calling, to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a verse with a wonderfully intimate undertone. All of that just means that we must look and continue to dismantle as many of these mist-bringing myths that surround us all, especially the much more pervasive myths around women and their bodies that the church has not stood in front of, but in many ways has actually pushed These are dual myths. These are myths that affect us all. They pertain to both of us. One powerful dual myth would be this one, that modesty should be used primarily as a service to men. You should cover up so I don't struggle. This is basically saying that women need to cover up to take care of all men's morality. 
which is basically saying that women are responsible for men's temptation and lust, which has led us to this terrible myth that exposure is permission or invitation. And I've experienced that in real life with a woman who was raped and shared with me and someone else heard about it and then asked me, yeah, but what was she wearing? Some of this is so woven into our culture, we don't even know we are doing it. We don't even know as Christian men we are doing it. This has come up in this series over and over and over. So I'm just gonna give this to you to process as men and women of Kesed. This statement has been made three or four times within this very series that, and this is painful clarity, I had multiple women tell me the first time they realized their bodies were potentially dangerous was when they started going through puberty and their fathers stopped hugging them. Because we haven't taught a lot of men how to engage with women in a healthy way. And so they objectify these ones and they're married to these ones and these ones are their moms. And then all of a sudden these these women come into their lives that they love, but that now they're becoming like young adults. And, and, and all of a sudden there's this uncomfortableness that subconsciously there's nothing going on in their heads that's, that's wrong. It's just there's no way to kind of get around and engage because we've allowed so many of these myths to permeate how, permeate how we operate. If these myths and many more that need to be reimagined, these ones, and so guide us into the place God has been intending all along. But for any of that to happen, we must start with changing our own personal and even this church's myths. And that always happens the same way, the same way that we're doing some of that right now, that work as a church. It happens by standing in the light and speaking the truth. John 8, 13 says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It is always standing in the truth and in the light that changes how your mind operates. Truth is what happens when mist and myths give way to a well-lit reality. So let's keep a bit of that reality in the room as I step out into it right now with this final powerful myth. And this is the myth that Kessid Church is a place of equality and shared responsibility. Because it is not. This church was born out of a system of belief, out of a culture that existed long before me, but that I didn't tackle early on. This church allows and has allowed a lot of things within its culture that are just wrong. 70 to 80% of the volunteering here at this church is done by women, and yet 100% of all the decision-making, the pastoral and elder roles, are men. And I don't believe in the arc of how I see Scripture and how I see the ideal kind of community that God is building that that is right. And so starting today, that's going to change. Because Kesed with full approval of elders and staff and everyone else involved that that we've been working towards with this is now going to be affirming women elders and women pastors in our leadership across the board. This is what partnering looks like. It looks like giving up some power. It looks like going first. It looks like being very Jesus-like. Because in the end... What ultimately happens is we are blessed because voices are added and responsibility is shared. Last week, we had a young woman share with us. Her name was Lindsay Ponder. 
And I've had a lot of you ask, so just stop it. Yes, we'll get her to come back. I promise. They're like, when's Lindsay coming back? When's Lindsay coming back? I'm like, just relax. Lindsay just did an amazing job and uh, she used all the skills and the anointing and the ways God built her to do the things she did. And she taught us, both men and women. The amazing thing about Lindsay's story that you didn't realize that you weren't even uh, understanding is that when I met with Lindsay and asked her to come and share at Kesed, when I offered to what we call platforming, to put her on the platform, uh, I asked her because I'd heard she was great. And I said, would you do it? She said, yeah. And I said, awesome. Where have you spoke before? And she goes, well, I've done a few youth groups and I have done some Bible studies. And I said, oh yeah, of course. But where have you spoke on the weekends? Where have you led a church service? And she looked at me and said, I've never led a church service. You experienced Lindsay for the very first time ever getting to use her gifts in a public format. And, and it's beautiful, yeah. It's beautiful, but it's also really heartbreaking because the only reason that Lindsay hasn't been platformed before is because she's a girl. It's not because she's not educated enough or not skilled enough or not anointed enough. It's because of her gender. The first time I ever spoke on a weekend, I was 15 years old on a weekend. And in all honesty, as I look back on it now, I know that if I had been a girl, of course, they would have never asked me. That changed the trajectory of my life. We say a lot around here at Kesed that we want to give this whole thing away, that, that the goal is to end up pouring ourselves out like Paul and hand it all to the next generation. Do you know that I never even realized what I really was saying for the last 12 years of its existence is one day we're going to give Kesed to the boys of Kesed. Because there's no structure to re- for the girls to receive anything here until today. I want to be a church where my daughters and your daughters And my son and your sons grow up alongside each other, getting to live their full anointing, their full calling. And we need to be the generation that pays that cost. And if that means we lose families, if that means we have men who just can't give up that power, it's just too hard for them to set down. If that's what that means, then that's what that means. Because I'm accountable to the light more than I'm accountable to the culture. I'm accountable to Jesus more than I'm accountable to you. And so we have to decide who we're going to be. And I believe that voice will change our world, change our community, and most certainly change our church. But none of it matters if it doesn't first change you. You've got to set down the mist and the myth, and you've got to awaken your family, your daughters, your sons, the things in and in front of you. Those are your responsibility. Those are yours to lead. And this community, it belongs to you as much as it belongs to me. So my hope is, is that you stay involved, that you stay connected, and that you're a part of this discussion, for better, for worse, to bring glory to God. Amen? Amen. Will you stand? We'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that we can live in some of this tension right now. I ask that we wouldn't just... uh, try to get out of it, try to, try to decide it all the way, deem something right or something wrong, that God, we would instead, we would decide to sit with it, to ask you to sift it, to take out what isn't, to leave in what is, and that Lord, we would become a place that your Holy Spirit flows freely from person to person and awakens within them the gifts you have been imagining all along. 
I thank you for every life in this room, for the way you're about to use it. May you bless us in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for coming. We'll see you next week.